Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Jeremiah 31 and verse 9. Jeremiah 31 and verse 9. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, beloved congregation, as we have been working our way through this most important chapter of the Word of God, we have seen how Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant is very rich and full, denoting a number of different specific fulfillments to take place after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have traced out the broad themes of this book of comfort, as it's come to be called, Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33, we have uh, sought to demonstrate that there is certainly a connection to the purpose of national Israel, that it would be brought back into the church and the people of God under the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. And so it is that Dr. Gill, in commenting about verse 9, says this, the Jews will come to Christ and to the gospel church as well as into their own land with joy that they have found the Messiah and are brought under his garment and into the enjoyment of the privileges of the gospel and the possession of their own land, or with tears of repentance for all their sins, original and actual, especially for their sin of unbelief, rejection of the Messiah. So the commentator there speaks of the tears that we read of in verse 9 as those at, as sort of denoting at once the joy of coming to the privileges of the gospel and the lament and sorrow for the sin of unbelief, particularly when, as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel, the national people, shall be saved. However, we've also seen that as the visible church, sorry, the visible, visible people of Israel, the Israel according to the flesh, functions as a type and picture of the elect church. So also we are fully warranted in deriving spiritual lessons and applications from these, as indeed uh, they do point to a fulfillment which is carried out among all the Lord's people, regardless of their ethnic background, whether Jew or Gentile. This was primarily the focus of our morning sermon as we considered the great part of this, chap this verse 9 of chapter 31, looking at it particularly from the angle of the fatherhood of God. God speaking here as the father to Israel and Ephraim, who leads his people beside the rivers of waters in a straight way. We saw the love of the father and the care of the father in a unique way for his adopted children. And also began to consider this third thing of the chastening of the Lord. 
Indeed, the first part of this verse, which we touched on very briefly, they shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I do believe speaks of the way in which the Lord leads all of his people in some measure or other. That that true apprehension of the grace of Christ comes with this, the weeping and the supplications. There is something here that I say deserves our closest attention. There is, I think, a sore lack of the kind of marks of genuine spirituality and sensitivity to the correction and leading of the Lord in our own day. It is a spiritually dark day. It is a day where, indeed, the hearts of many wax cold. But how is it with us in this afternoon hour as we would approach this portion of God's word? Can we trace out in some measure, in truth, the true experience of the Lord leading his people. We will consider this aspect of our text in this afternoon's sermon under the theme, The Children of God Weeping. The Children of God Weeping. And I wish to show in the first place a work of grace, second, a distinguishing mark, and third, a sweet duty. A work of grace a distinguishing mark, a sweet duty. A Christian is a paradox, will you agree? On the one hand, the most happy and joyful of all people should be the Christians. You know the living God, who know they have passed from death to life, who indeed can call upon God as their Father in Christ Jesus. And yet Christ himself spoke of this aspect of the Christian's character in his Beatitudes, Matthew 5 and verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is something of the cast of character of a true child of God which has something of dissatisfaction about it. Their pleasure, their true satisfaction, awaits in one sense in the world to come. And in this life, there is a mourning and a grief which is characteristic of the Christian according to Christ. Now, we not, ought not to misunderstand Christ here. It's not that you will be blessed if you mourn enough, if you conjure up these things more in yourself. No, the blessings of genuine salvation. They flow down from above by the free hand of a merciful Father. And they are attended with these marks that they may be rightly discerned. It's all of grace, you see. Thus our text says, they shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. It's God who leads us in this way of mourning. I won't multiply the many cases. Let me just give you one from the psalm, uh, the sixth psalm, verse 6. I am weary with my groaning all the night. Make I my bed to swim, my water, my couch, with my tears. Jeremiah 50 and verse 4, again in the book of Jeremiah, similar language to our text. 
In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. Now what is it that we are to discern from this? Are we to discern who is a true Christian by this? Are they always walking about with tears streaming down their faces? And if someone is so weeping constantly, may we conclude on the basis of this external evidence that they are indeed a child of God? That would be one question we could ask from the text. Let me read to you something written by a Presbyterian minister named Michael Spangler as he uh, writes, The Bible is full of tears, in it men are weeping often and profusely. Should you be? A distinction helps here. Tears are an outward sign of inward feeling. It is commonplace in language and especially in scripture to indicate an inward feeling by an outward sign. Joy by laughter, triumph by shouting, lamentation by torn clothing, sackcloth, ashes. But we all know the feeling can be present and intense without the sign. Dry grief can be the deepest grief of all. Moreover, tears from bodily distress say little of the soul. And the intensity and frequency of tears depends in part on factors merely natural, like culture, sex, and constitution. So must a Christian be a man or a woman of tears? Yes, in the sense that he must be like Christ, a man of sorrows. But no, in that God weighs the weeping of the heart and not the eyes. It is not mere eye water he puts in his bottle and will wipe away. Rather, it is the true grief of a heart broken for sin, crying to Christ alone for mercy. I read that at length because I felt Pastor Spangler explains that very well. What God is recording here is not a grief which can be discerned visibly in every case. No, it is a true grief of the soul, of the heart, of the inner man. Joel 2 verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. The thing that is before us is that where the Lord would lead us in that path to heaven, where he would lead us unto the promised land of glory in the world to come, there is this that goes with that leading. There is a sorrow of heart. And what is this to be connected with if it is not connected with the knowledge of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Sorrow of the world is a sorrow that can be motivated by any number of reasons a problem in our life, circumstances, some um, part of our personality that makes us to be sorrowful, perhaps something in our upbringing or some past trauma. There can be all sorts of things that bring us to a place of sorrow. 
But the sorrow that genuinely counts is not a sorrow of the world merely, not merely natural, no, but a godly sorrow, Paul says. It worketh repentance to salvation. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau for whom one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that afterward when he would have inherited the blessing he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau knew that worldly repentance, sorry that he had rejected the promise, sorry in one sense for the consequences of his sin, but not this true godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance. What does our catechism say in Lord's Day 33? What is mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. And we know we have a godly sorrow, a genuine sorrow of heart, a genuine mourning, a genuine weeping for the right reason. Well, it is this. It leads to us contemplating how we have provoked and offended God. How we have transgressed his awesome majesty and it leads in every case to a fleeing away from sin and a fleeing unto Christ this is I believe the grace that we are speaking of here it is this which the Lord leads his people in this is what we must covet this is what we must desire this is what we must pray for this is what we must search after in our own Souls, the genuine work of God, the weeping of which our text speaks. Let me go one further and speak of it as a distinguishing mark, distinguishing mark. Turn back a little bit in Jeremiah now to the 14th chapter. Jeremiah 14 now. And begin reading at verse 15 in this context, Jeremiah is identifying the problems of apostasy in the Jewish church before the exile. And he writes in Jeremiah 14, verse 15, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. Therefore thou shalt say this word unto them, Let mine eyes run down with tears day, night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken down with a great branch, with a very grievous blow. Here's a striking thing that we may recognize here. Here is a righteous preacher, the man Jeremiah, and what he is afflicted by is the signs of spiritual barrenness and hardness all around him. 
It afflicts him and fills him with sorrow that the prophets would speak falsely, having not been sent by God. They say, no, judgment will not come for your sins. Do not worry about your sins. And the people have it so. So he weeps and laments. Why? Because God's honor. God's honor is being assaulted. Listen to Arthur Pink. Here is a call to weeping, not for an individual, nor yet for his nation, but for the languishing cause of God. It was tears of lamentation which were enjoined in view of the sad state of the church that the church was yet in. Israel had sinned grievously, and the rod of divine chastisement lay heavy upon her. No longer did she enjoy God's smile of approbation. Instead, his judgments were her portion, and her enemies prevailed over her. She was not to harden her heart or to be stoically indifferent, but make conscience, conscience of her iniquities and bewail the dishonor done her God. In like manner, her people today should take to heart the present state of things in Christendom and the reproach it brings on the name of Christ. What a desolate state the Lord's vineyard is now in. How many a golden candlestick has been removed. What a feeble glimmer is cast by the remaining ones. The glory has departed. The power and the blessing of the Spirit is withheld. If the cause of Christ is dear unto us, we shall weep over and mourn its grievous condition. End quote. Well, you would think Arthur Pink was speaking about our own day, wouldn't you? If ever there was a day where the kingdom of Christ seemed to be assaulted on every side, where the church seemed to be bereft of power, unction, and authority, where the cause of Christ seemed to be trampled underfoot, where souls by the millions seemed to be plunging headlong in total, into eternity in total ignorance of their state and condition. Surely it is today. And what should mourn you, Christian? What should grieve you is this. More than also your own personal sin, it is this. Wherever sin exists upon the earth, wherever it may be as a reality, it is an offense unto your Lord. Does it not stir you up where you would see the Lord's name taken in vain? Does it not fill you with anguish when you would see uh, some who would live for anything other than Christ? Does it not leave you with a sense of jealousy and urgency to correct and rebuke and exhort where even the people of God are languishing in their duty before the Lord? Here is how it should affect us. There is a numbing a numbing of the world in which we live, of the climate and the culture and the spirit of the age. It says sleep as everyone else sleeps. It says ignore, turn your head, look the other way. It's just the way things are. But surely, 
Surely if we have been touched by the Spirit of God, if indeed we have seen something of the glory of Christ, if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then surely we would want to speak with the Apostle Paul. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. We count his enemies as our enemies. We count his fight as our fight. We count his glory as our supreme duty. There it is. There are all sorts of ways in which uh, humanism, a selfishness, can creep into the child of God's heart, a sort of self-entitled attitude that ultimately brings the entire religion of Christianity on its face and makes it about us instead of the glorious name of our Lord. And so it is, we may do a heart check this morning. We may ask ourselves, what makes us more enraged? Is it where someone would give a slight against us and speak a word of criticism against us? Or is it where someone would speak against your Lord, Christian? Is it when your plans and your expectations are thwarted that makes you most enraged? Or is it when the kingdom of Christ and his objectives are hindered? Is it Christ's honor that you esteem? Is it Christ that you are sanctifying in your heart? Here it is, and it distinguishes, doesn't it? We read that uh, most disturbing chapter, I believe, of Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9, or the glory of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appears unto that prophet Ezekiel, and he speaks to him of all those abominations which are taking place among the people of God. He casts him up into this great vision, and he beholds, as he does, the many abominations of the worship of the people of God, how it is that they are profaning the very heart of the Lord's worship, putting perverse things where only holy belong. And worse, they are saying the Lord doesn't see us. He is ignoring what takes place upon the earth. And so what was, what was it that we read? We read how it was that the Lord summoned those six fighting men with weapons of slaughter and the one man with a marking instrument and there was the instructions go out through all the city go through all the city and put a mark a mark on everyone who weeps and laments for the sake of these abominations and all others commit them to the slaughter whether young or old whether women or children and the prophet Ezekiel considers it too much. And he says, the, the whole people will be destroyed. How could you do this? And, and he explains that the sins of his people are so exceeding great. And the Lord cannot overlook them. Do you shrink back and say, this is, cannot be the true and living God. This cannot be the God of the Bible. How could he be so zealous for his honor? How is it that he could speak so completely? devoted to his own glory. Well, because, dear one, he is God. He is God and we are not. He lives for his own glory. 
He exists of himself. All things exist by him and they exist for him. And we exist for him, for all things have their purpose in him. And the only things in this whole wide creation that seem to have rejected are his rational creatures, the fallen demons and the fallen human race. And yet we count it as a remarkable thing that God would visit his vengeance upon the adversaries. Jeremiah 3 and verse 21, a voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way and they have forgotten, forgotten the Lord their God. A strange thing to think about, people who were set apart to be a kingdom of priests, whose whole life and rhythm was characterized by the motions of religious worship and ritual. And yet, God can say they've perverted their way, they've forgotten the Lord their God. Have you forgotten the Lord? Are you actually living without him before your mind's eye? Have you gone so far astray that you've forgotten the very reason for your existence? Here is the calling. Here is the thing that must be before us. There must be weeping and there must be supplications. For we have grieved the Lord. And to trace out what was happening there. There was the glory cloud which properly resides in the holy of holies. And, and you know, the glory cloud, Ezekiel had said, it, it had departed, departed that place of the, the, um, of the Ark of the Covenant. And as you trace out Jer Ezekiel's prophecy, he leaves further and further away from the, the corridor of the temple and, and through the courtyard and to the perimeter of the city. The glory of God departing. Terrifying to contemplate. Uh, there could be all the external edifice of a genuine church, and yet God is not in it. The Lord is not in it. For we have forgotten the Lord. Jeremiah 3, verse 25, we lie down in our shame and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. There is the frame of heart once these things are made real unto us, that we have grievously offended the Lord that we have not upheld his honor as the highest of goods, that we have forgotten him. And so we humbled unto the dust say, Righteous Lord, you speak truth. We are unworthy for anything other than to be cast forth as an unclean thing. And so it is that the grace of genuine lament and weeping over sin may be born in the soul. I speak in the third place here of a sweet duty, a sweet duty. Let's look again at Jeremiah 31, would you? Verse 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
verse that brings together the whole uh, picture, doesn't it? There is the weeping and then there is the sorrow, the heinousness of our sins that comes home unto us. And yet through and in it all, it is this that we see, the fatherhood of God, the grace and the mercy of the God of heaven in Christ Jesus. It is this which stokes that, that grace of genuine sorrow for sin. Is it not a sweet thing, believer? You know, there are many pleasures that you will experience in heaven which you today know even a very small bit of. But one pleasure which we know in this life is that moment. That moment in which the Spirit of God persuades us and convicts us of sin. And there is the expelling, the expulsion of a vile sin that's been uh, hidden in within our hearts. And we cast it forth. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what Jeremiah speaks of as that straight way. There is no other way. There is no other path, no other gate, but only this. Acknowledgement of your sin, glad confession of it, numbering them as they come to your mind, harboring not one of them in the secret place of your heart and conscience, no, but, but laying them all out and saying, here they are, Lord, here are the sins, here is how I have lived, this is what I've thought, this is how I have wandered away from you. I confess it all and I lay it all. I lay it all at the feet of Christ. I plead nothing, nothing of myself, but plead only that blood which cleanses from all sin. Here is the only way to deal with sin, the only way that can prove an actual broken heart before the Lord of true weeping over sin. You notice how it's joined there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. Will I lead them? Do not allow your weeping, your sorrow, your blackness of heart upon recognition of your sinful condition to drive you off into a corner by yourself. No, the Lord would have you draw close unto him at exactly such a time as this. Is there ever a bad time to bring our cares before the Lord? You know, there only is one bad time, and that is next time. Because next time never comes. No, where you feel that conviction, where you feel that sorrow, where you feel that weeping, you bring it all and you cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. Jeremiah 3 and verse 3, Therefore the showers have been withholden and there hath been no latter rain and thou, shalt, thou hadst a whore's forehead Thou refusest to be ashamed. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, My Father, thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. 
There it is. You call about upon him as your father in Christ Jesus. Where before you could not even blush over your sin. Now you bring everything, including your hardness of heart, including your lack of shame. You bring it all before the Lord. And you say, Lord, I am so cold. I am so far gone. I am so sinful. Deal with me. Deal with me not as a transgressor, but deal with me as your child in Christ Jesus. This morning we read from Zechariah 12, a most interesting chapter, one that's hard to fully interpret, but certainly the latter part is plain enough and seems to be a parallel to our text. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. A blessed prophecy, I believe, of the future conversion of the Jews, as indeed it was those people who pierced the Lord of glory by having him, uh, having him crucified by Roman hands. And yet when the grace of spirit of grace, rather, and supplications is poured forth, there is this dramatic change where once there was unbelief and, and no thought whatsoever of the Lord Jesus, suddenly there is a completely different attitude and picture that is found here. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his own son. Not only with the Jew, but also with the Gentile, with every sinner. Surely there is something of that. The cross is not only just a transaction from which you get something. No, it is most intimately personal. Here is your Savior, Christian. He has died for you. Can you not but mourn for him? Where you behold his agonies, his hellish torments, not for himself, but for you. Where you would see that he has suffered all these things on your behalf that he has drunk the cup of God's wrath unto the dregs for you? Can there really be a dry eye? Can there really be a hardening in the face of this? It says, as he mourneth for his own son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Oh, indeed, that is the way with the Christian, where Christ has so loved us, we cannot but give him our everything. We cannot but say, all that would offend my Christ is my sworn enemy, for I am his and he is mine. This is the genuine place that we must come if we would have sorrow for our sin, Christian. Let this be your resolve that you would stay close unto the cross, that you would fix your heart much upon this crucified Savior, and you would not let him go until the Father would lead you in that straight way 
of weeping and supplication. Amen.